Let's turn now to the Word of God, 1 Peter, beginning in verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The Word of the Lord. You may be seated. The title of this message is Blessed Trinity, and we find the triune God referenced in verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, three distinct persons. Yet one divine essence. And you also find it in the text in the balance of the verses that we read. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then at the very end, he talked about the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Blessed Trinity. One God, one in being, one in essence, three distinct persons. Last week as we looked at this, we noted a couple of things that the theologians tell us in trying to grasp this mystery of the Trinity. God, one God, not three gods, one God in essence, 
in being. Three distinct personalities. One God, and yet three persons. Inscrutable. And yet, this foundational doctrine of the Christian faith, which is so well stated in the Belgic Confession that we read a moment ago, is held universally by Orthodox Christians. A few years ago, I was having a walk and a talk with a very bright young man who was really struggling with Christianity and the doctrines of the faith and even the existence of God, to tell you the truth. This young man was going through a really tough time of grappling with these truths. And if we take them seriously, we will have to grapple with these truths. The human mind does not readily grasp these doctrines, these teachings. And this young man was making the point, which has been made by agnostics and unbelievers and non-Christians and even some professing Christians over the centuries that there's such a diversity in the Christian faith. There are so many viewpoints. There is so much diversity of opinion. There are so many views that there's no center. There's no real consistency. You've got all kinds of denominations teaching all kinds of perspectives on all kinds of subjects. And it's just really such a scattered field that it is really not possible to see a true Christian faith. And I allowed him to expand upon that a little bit and looked at superficially when you start thinking about all the different denominations of Christianity, the cultures through which Christianity has traveled these 20 centuries, and all of the theologians and Bible scholars that have contributed to the stew pot of Christian thinking, it may appear that way. But while granting the point to the young man, I said, Consider this, probably the most difficult doctrine to comprehend is the Christian teaching, the distinct Christian teaching that there is one God, but three persons. I said, there are mysteries in the Christian faith. The incarnation is a mystery. How can the God become man incarnate? But there's all sorts of notions of man as the son of God that has pervaded human thought. That's a mystery, the incarnation. We deal with that around about Christmas time. Another great mystery is the power of the resurrection. How could a dead man whose corpse had been laid in a tomb come completely to life in wholeness and health. Not just a resuscitation, but a resurrection into great power and into mortal taking on immortality, corruption taking on incorruption. Resurrection. It's a distinct Christian doctrine and a mystery. 
We talk about that a lot at Easter. But the Trinity. I asked the young man, I said, do you realize that as difficult a truth as the Trinity is, that it's held universally by Christians? The primitive church struggled with it because monotheism had been ingrained into Israel's mind. Hero Israel, the Lord is one. Monotheism was the clear teaching of the Old Testament. There's one God. But even though we see the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the pre-incarnate Son, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, all through the Old Testament, it was the manifestation of Christ upon the earth in the flesh, claiming to be full deity. He that has seen the Father has seen me, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. And then at the mighty manifestation of the Spirit of God in the life of Christ through all of His miracles and His message, then coming into the days of Pentecost in the primitive church, they recognized the power of the person of the Son and the power and the presence of the person of the Spirit and the full deity of each. And as part of experience, growing out of their experience and the revelation, not just of the prophets, but now of the apostles, taught clearly that God existed, the one God existed as three distinct persons. And I said to the young man, the primitive church believed in the doctrine of the Trinity. And it would have been real easy for them to try to explain it away. It would have been real easy for them at that early first century in the apostolic era and that period of the fathers immediately following around 100 and going about to one, when, when the apologist and the early fathers of the church began to think through the logic and the reasonableness of the Christian faith. They're in a milieu of all kinds of religious teaching. Jewish, pagan, Eastern, pantheons in every major civilization, in Egypt, in Assyria, in Rome, in Greece. You've all studied the Roman and the Greek gods. All of the notions in the noggins of all the philosophers and the religious teachers and zealots of that first century. And yet, they consistently formulated and held on to the understanding of God as one, but three persons. So I told the young man, the primitive church held to the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, many of the benedictions and things that we now see as very liturgical, we use them in our worship service, but really just part of the correspondence of Peter and Paul and John are Trinitarian. And I told the young man, but it didn't go just there. 
for the next 400 plus years, the Orthodox Church held to the doctrine of the Trinity, and they still do. And the creeds and the councils of the 4th and 5th century were Trinitarian, and they still are. Even the Apostles' Creed, which is the oldest and the simplest and the most widely used of all the confessions of faith, is Trinitarian. It talks about, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in His Son. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, in the Apostles' Creed. And then the Nicene spells it out even more in the subsequent creeds. The formulas of, the, of Chalcedon to see what was the relationship exactly between the Father and the Son, and to see that the Son was not inferior or subservient in any way. And as they worked this out in the Orthodox Church in the first five centuries of Christianity, I told the young man, it's pretty remarkable. And even at the first great schism, about a thousand years, into the Christian faith when the Eastern Church and the Western Church split. And the Latin Church, the Roman Church, what's going to be called the Catholic Church. The West, the Latin, the Catholic Church held to the Orthodox position of the Trinity. The only deviation was the philoke clause, which simply spelled out, which was implicit in all the rest of the earlier creeds. Fast forward 500 years, 1500, the years of 1500, 16th century. The Reformed, the Protestant movement within the Latin church, within the Catholic church, never changed, never deviated, never moved from a Trinitarian understanding of God. So now as we look around the world, we see the three great branches of Christianity, the Orthodox, the Catholic, and the Reformed, the Protestant, all holding to the Son. What's the odds of a doctrine so complicated, so mysterious, so inscrutable, being held by all of the Christian faith across the centuries and across the globe. If there was any place you'd think they'd want to do some modifications, some disagreements, some delineations, some tweaking, as we call it now, of the doctrine it would be in these great schisms and in these great movements. But no, they held to the doctrine of the triune God. And by the way, that will be the great challenge in the decades ahead. Because the second largest religion on the planet, second to Christianity, and growing much faster than Christianity numerically, is Islam. And Islam 
holds to a monotheism, one God, not to one God in three persons, but one God simply. And I would like to interject here that it's not the same God. Allah is not Yahweh. And you see it not just in the attributes that are ascribed to Allah and Yahweh, although there are some incredible similarities. And in fact, many believe that Muhammad simply adopted the Hebrew view of God, but he did not. Because from the very beginning, God had revealed himself to the patriarchs, which we've surveyed this past spring, all the way from Adam and Enoch and Noah and Abraham, and Isaac, Jacob. And you remember the, the great biography we've looked at this year of the men who believed in God. God always revealed himself, not only in his great attributes, of his eternality and his immensity and his omniscience and omnipresence and all the rest. But he revealed himself as a loving, saving God. Having mercy to a thousand generations, not as arbitrary, not as fatalistic, but as vitally involved in the continuing providence over his people and determining to, in spite of their incapacity, God was determined to save them from their condition. Not simply give them rules that enable them by keeping the rules to save themselves. And what we call the Christian gospel or the plan of salvation or the workings of the mighty God to save humanity and to rescue fallen creatures is part of the very essence of God. God is a loving, saving, rescuing, redeeming, restoring God. You don't find that in Allah. And just so you know, if you studied carefully, Allah was the moon god of the ancient Arabic population. The return to monotheism that Muhammad led was a return to the selection of one god from the pantheon of ancient pagan deities of his people. We don't select from a pantheon one God. There is no God anywhere but the Lord God, Yahweh. Not even Allah. Nobody holds 
the truths of the doctrine of the triune God, but the Christians. And there are several notions in that that are repulsive to the carnal mind. The Bible says the carnal mind, the natural mind, the mind that we're given, the mind that we develop, the, the brain power that we are endowed with by our genetic structure and that we grow up with and we learn and we perceive and give us our cognitive function that mind has been affected by sin. Nobody thinks purely and perfectly. There's a bend, there's a twist, there's a warp in that way of thinking. Not just innately, but culturally as well. And something that is repulsive to the carnal mind is the notion of one God three persons. Also repulsive is the notion of God coming in the flesh. That's offensive. Also the notion that someone would be raised from the, the mysteries of Christianity are held to us, are held by us as precious and foundational. And people that do not believe in the true God as we do somehow have a mission from their notion of God to silence us. But we must always be Trinitarian. When you walk away from that doctrine, you walk away from the faith. You no longer believe as a Christian should believe. You may behave like a Christian. <laughs> you may belong to a church. You may have a testimony. But your understanding of God is inadequate at least defective and aberrant. We pointed out last week that it is important and the theologians help us in distinguishing between the being of God and the works of God. The theologians call that the ontological trinity and the economic trinity. And as we said last week by way of introduction that the ontological trinity is that understanding of the way God is in His essence, in His being. That's what the word ontology means. It's the science or the understanding of being, of existence. Who God is in His ontology, in His being. And all the attributes that you've studied in your basic Christian doctrine courses. His aseity, his immensity, his eternality. Most pure spirit, the things that the confessions teach us. 
And the economic trinity is the way God relates to Himself as three persons and to His creation. And that's what we see most material in the Scriptures are teaching us about the triune God in His economic activity. The word economics means simply the law of the house, the way He operates in His household, His creation, His temple, which is the whole universe, where He dwells in His omnipresence. And it also teaches us about His doings. And that's what we see in the epistles and the letters, is how God relates to us. And I've reached that point where I'm getting ready to preach a sermon, and I'm out of time. But we see it in the very first verse. We saw it last week. It's the foreknowledge of God. This is God's electing love. I'm going to give you a homework assignment. I'm going to let you finish this sermon for me. There's three words or three terms that are used over and over in, in, the, in the book of Peter. You need to read the book of 1 Peter. It's short. It's five little chapters. You can get through it just in a less than a half hour of reading, I'm sure. Probably half that. But it keeps talking over and over about called. You'll see that used a half a dozen times in the book. We're called. We're called. That's that work of God the Father in electing, selecting, and calling out and drawing to His Son. No one can come to the Son except the Father draw Him. And that's what the Father does in the call. By the way, Peter was the first disciple to be called. Look at the work of the Father in His economic activity as the one who calls. And the Holy Spirit is the one who sanctifies you'll find about five references. The word will be used more often than that, but five passages in the book of 1 Peter which will talk about holiness, sanctification, that work of the Holy Spirit of separating us unto God and then making us fit to be God's people and fit eventually for God's presence. And then the third person of the triune God, the Son, I mean, well, I mean, the second person, the third in our list, the Son is spoken of as the one who makes atonement. And the word that's used over and over and over is the word suffering, His passion. He suffered for us. And you'll see that used about seven times in the book of First Peter. The work of the triune God calling us suffering for us, atoning for us, and sanctifying us. In the modern pulpit, preaching has become psychology, not necessarily theology. Thankfully, in our tradition, in the Reformed faith, and we are the heirs of the great Reformers, John Calvin and John Knox and all the others, that's our little denomination of Christianity, of Orthodox Christianity. Our heritage is theology first. 
then anthropology. First God and who He is and what He has done. His plan, His purpose, His heart, His mind, His glory. Then, and only then, is it about us. Who we are. Where we're going. How should we behave? What is our destiny? How should we handle our relationships? What should be our chief aim in life? A lot of things in the Bible about anthropology or about psychology or about humanity filled. But it starts with God, a triune God, a blessed trinity. 